You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Well, good morning. Welcome again to Grace Community Church. If this is your first time, we extend to you a very special welcome and are grateful that you chose to worship here with us today. I'll be glad next Sunday when this section is filled back in with our youth who are coming back from Cuba. Actually, I will be glad when they're in their homes today. Uh, I know some of you parents uh, are eagerly anticipating their arrival into Fort Lauderdale and then on up to RDU. Um, I just want to encourage you, if you have not met the Kellys, Jeff and Leanna and Will and Emma and Grant and Kate, meet them. They're our newest uh, staff members, newest part of the body of Grace Community Church. Uh, And then also, if you haven't had a chance to meet Hannah Stone, who we heard from this morning, talking about things that are going to be very much a part of the message today in our security that we have in Jesus Christ. Uh, It's been quite a blessing to have Hannah here this summer. And she's corrected many things that we had wrong. And I'm just kidding. She contributes greatly to our staff meeting conversations and home group. And she's been there uh, with our group. And we've loved having her here. And we're really glad the Kellys are on board. So get to know Jeff and Leanna and all the other of Kellys as soon as you can. If you were a fan of a network show uh, that you watch every week, so in other words, you can't watch the whole season at once, but you watch this show week after week, and you're used to this show introducing the plot and then going through developing the plot, going through it, and concluding at the end of the show, possibly the, the most dreaded words at the end of the show are to be continued. In fact, you know when it's like that. You know when it's coming up. You can sense they're not going to wrap this up in the next three minutes. I know how this show works. So you, you just don't like that. Now, if it's, a, if it's a show that's ongoing like 24, you don't want it to be wrapped up. You want it to just hang on and keep finding out what's going to happen or, or keep anticipating what's going to happen. So when you're watching that show, even though the characters are developed throughout the entire run of the series, you want closure at the end of the show. Today is week two of a three-week series on John 6, 35 through 71. And I do hope that you were not frustrated after last week's message. Uh, Everything that needs to be said about this text cannot possibly be said in one week. In fact, all 71 verses of John 6 are dealing with the same thing. Who Jesus is, he's the bread of life, and we must partake of the bread of life if we are to have eternal life. Uh, There's far too much to cover in today's message to not jump in sooner rather than later. So let me remind you of three important principles as we study this text And then I'm going to give an overview for the three weeks before jumping in. Now, I've put the three weeks outline on Faith Life. So if you want those, you don't have to be trying to write when we get to it. But these three guidelines are not on uh, Faith Life. First of all, we will not understand everything in this text that Jesus said. 
It's just no way. A little bit of it is beyond our ability to wrap our minds around. And those who do fully wrap their minds around this text have people who would disagree with them who fully wrap their minds around it in another way. And both have compelling arguments. Second, some things we will understand later. Some things that you don't get just now, you will get later on. It's one of the great benefits of of going to church week after week after week, reading through text, studying text. I've had lots of times where I would read a text and, or I'd hear a sermon and I'm, I'd take good notes and it's like, I just didn't understand that. And then years later, I come back to that sermon because I'm going to be preaching on it. And, I make, and it makes perfect sense because over the years, a lot of the foundation has been filled in. Some of the peripheral stuff has been, and I'm beginning to get a hold of it. We're not going to understand everything in this text ever, probably. Not, not this side of eternity. Some things, though, we're going to understand later on. And then three, nothing we disagree on is cause for breaking unity and fellowship. I can promise you we are going to disagree on some of these things today. It's just the way it is. But we're all orthodox believers. We're all under the umbrella of orthodoxy. We're not getting outside of, of that which is pure and solid and good Doctrine. We may just have a little disagreement on the way things are done and the way God works. Because a lot of times, God says one thing and he says something else over here in his word. It's not that they're contradictory. It's just bigger than we are. We can't fully grasp it. Okay, so here's the outline for three Sundays. Uh, the three Sundays we are... Spending in the latter half of John 6. Last, last week we covered these five things. The bread of life. The relationship between the Father and the Son. Look, there's a whole lot about the Holy Spirit that later on. So there's a great deal we understand, begin to understand about the Trinity from the Gospel of John. We looked at the gift of believers from the Father to the Son. When the Father gives us to the Son, we are a gift to Jesus. And then the gift of eternal life in Jesus for those who believe. And then last that Hannah was talking about security in Jesus. Now, what we're going to look at today, week two of this series, you're going to see some of the exact same uh, thoughts. They're just being different um, ways. So week two, today we're going to cover this, the I am statements. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. That's going to be a biggie. The promise of unbroken relationship and eternal security. The necessity of staying close to Jesus. And then the hope of the resurrection. Next week will be almost all application. If you think, wow, we're just not really getting a lot of application these two weeks. Next week's going to be almost all. So we're going to think about this in week three. The priority of God's word over personal views or expectations about God. That would be a good thing to just lay down right now. Let me try to hear and understand who God is and what he's saying. Not necessarily who I've perceived him to be or who I want him to be. And the ways that he deals with us. Number two, the importance of thinking theologically. It really throws people sometimes when I say, look, it's... 
We, every one of us must think biblically, but we have to go beyond that to think theologically. John 6 is a good place to sort of emphasize why that's important. Number three, sacrifice. The sacrifice of the disciple, the loneliness of the disciple. Everybody walked away. Jesus said, you as well. Are you going to? Four, danger in the church. And I'm going to name names. No, I'm just kidding. Um, maybe the big danger is right here. You know, you, you never know. But there is danger in the church, in every church. It was in Jesus' 12 disciples. There's always the possibility of danger. And then five, staying close to Jesus no matter what. And increasingly in our society, that's going to be more and more important. Stay close to Jesus no matter what. So, the format for today's message will be opposite from last week. Last week, we read this large uh, batch of scripture, John 6, 35 through 71. Today, we're going to jump into the text or to the points first. And then afterwards, we will read the text. Of course, we're going to be looking at individual verses, groups of verses, through the different points of the message. But at the end, we're going to read John 6, 35 through 59. And hopefully, some of this will begin to fall into place in your mind. Before we get to the first point, though, I want us to look at Deuteronomy 29, 29, which is going to be our scripture reading for the day. It'll prepare our hearts for what we will encounter in John 6 today. So if you would, as is our custom, I'll ask you to please stand for the reading of God's Word. Deuteronomy 29, 29. Just before Moses handed over the reins to Joshua, he's talking to the people. And he says, the secret things that belong to Yahweh, our God, the secret things, excuse me, the secret things belong to Yahweh, our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. That we may do all the wheels of this law. There are secret things and things that are revealed. And God calls us to trust him in all of it. Let's pray. Father... We come to the word with gratitude in our hearts, knowing that you have revealed yourself to us. We come to the word with fear and trembling, knowing that it will reveal us. And that we will be confronted with decisions. We must choose to follow you. Choose to say yes. To Jesus, we come to the word with hearts uh, that anticipate understanding you better, but recognizing that we have limitations. So as we come, may our hearts be open and filled full today in Jesus name. Amen. Thank you and be seated. Five things to talk about today that overlap with last week's message from the same text, beginning with the I am statements. During Jesus' time here, people were always trying to understand who Jesus was. 
and, and the interesting thing about it was that they weren't necessarily listening to him and trying to understand exactly what he was saying, <clears throat> but that he, they would hear what he says and say, oh, well, I, I know Jesus. He's this person or he's that. He's a great prophet. No, he's an imposter. We get to John 7, we're going to see all of these different reactions uh, about Jesus' ministry and his words, the same kinds of reactions that you hear today. People are all over the map and, and, <clears throat> and trying to identify who Jesus was. It's not that Jesus did not say who he was, double negative. He did say <coughs> exactly who he was. The Apostle John recorded seven different occasions in his gospel when Jesus identified himself by saying, I am, and then using a predicate, I am the bread of life. These descriptions uh, pointed us to the fact of the necessity of knowing Jesus for eternal life. Much like the parables, the I am statements did not always clarify everything in people's minds. In, in fact, when you think about the parables, you hear people say things like, oh, Jesus just taught these simple parables in agricultural age, and you can understand easily what he was saying. Sometimes that's true. Sometimes they're like, what? What did you just say? And a lot of times he wasn't doing an Aesop's fable, Aesop's fable kind of thing where he was saying, if you'll just do this, this is what will be the benefit for you. <laughs> like the book of Proverbs. Instead, he was identifying lost, saved. Lost, saved. And finally, when the Pharisees began to figure out what he was saying, they were like, hey, wait a minute. He's talking about us. You're talking about me. And he was like, yes, I'm talking about you. Absolutely deal with it. And a lot of times in those parables, they weren't invitations to change their belief. He was just saying, this is how it is. Some are saved, some are lost. The I am statements kind of the same way. People didn't hear Jesus say, I am the light of the world and then say, Oh, so that's who you are. I get it. In fact, Jesus' comments drove more people away from him than toward him. What the I am statements did, as Leon Morris puts it, was to point attention to someone otherwise unknown and inaccessible. Yahweh was unknown inaccessible. Moses said, Yahweh, show me your glory. And Yahweh said, you cannot handle my glory. I'll show you my goodness. But you cannot handle my glory. In Jesus, just as the prologue to John's gospel told us, those who have eyes to see may see God's glory. God's glory has been revealed in a, a way that we can gather it and catch it and understand it all. But it's only for those who believe. Another point in John 7, 17. It's not trying to understand so that I might believe, but faith seeking understanding. You may know that in addition to the provocative nature of Jesus' claims about himself, light of the world, the way, the truth, and the life, 
No man comes to the Father except me. In these I am descriptions, he was also using the name that Yahweh used to identify himself to Moses. In Exodus 3.14, ego me. I am. More about this when we get to John 8. That's a much better place to deal with it. There were a lot of times when Jesus would say, ego me." that's the Greek. Well, actually, he was speaking Aramaic. It's translated by the writers of the New Testament into um, Greek, and it comes from the, it, it connects with the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. People knew what Jesus was saying, and when he would say, I am the good shepherd, people are like, now wait, wait just a minute. Are you? But in John 8, 58, Jesus is going to identify himself in such a way that the Pharisees pick up rocks to stone him. So we'll wait until we get there to go into it in detail. Uh, for now, let's look at the seven I am statements found in John. We're just going to read through these. We'll get to them as we come. I am, Jesus said, the bread of life. I am the light of the world. By the way, not that a lot of you will take the time to do this, but it's going to be interesting for some of you. Remember how we talked about in the, in the prologue of John's gospel, the first 18 verses of chapter 1? Almost everything that is said later is an explanation of that prologue. Or uh, it's an outworking of what God has already told us is going to be in the prologue. It's just interesting to go back each week and check out and see where this connects with the prologue. So I am the light of the world. I am the door. You have to enter through the door to be in the sheepfold. Speaking of the sheepfold. The one that counts. I am the good shepherd, Jesus said. I am the resurrection and the life. You remember where Jesus said that? At Lazarus' resurrection. I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father unless he comes through me. I don't understand what you do with that verse to say that Christianity is about doing good works. It's not about... Accepting Jesus, it's about becoming like Jesus. We can't become like Jesus was God without sin. We will never be without sin. Now, we become more and more conformed to the image of Christ as we give him control of our lives. But we will never be good enough to be like Jesus so that God will say, Okay, come on in, you're good. I am the true vine, Jesus says. In John 15, 1 and 5. This would be a good study for you and your family. Don't you think? To work through the I am statements. And to reflect on the benefits of knowing. Of knowing this Jesus. The good shepherd. I don't know what I'm doing in life. But I know the good shepherd. I'm just following him. All I'm doing is just eating. And trying not to get eaten by a wolf. And he's over there protecting me. <clears throat> so reflect as you go through these I am statements on the benefits of knowing Jesus. How can we know Jesus? That's the focus of the second point. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. I, still, I'm, I'm, I think I've been hoping that all good 75, 80% of you are still here after this point. Um, we'll see. I, I think you'll all be here. Uh, for the moment, we're going to isolate the topic that is so frequently on believers' minds 
to a few verses in John 6, but as we read through the text at the end of the message, you'll see how this is interwoven all through John 6. And in fact, it's interwoven through all of Scripture. Uh, as we approach this topic, I realize that some of you would like to think about this in terms of election and choice because those are the terms and or concepts found elsewhere in Scripture and certainly the terms that are used uh, in the endless debate amongst Orthodox Christians. God's sovereignty, election, predestination, um, uh, man's responsibility, his ability to choose free will, all of those kinds of things that get bandied about, those terms that are constantly being <clears throat> preached at one another. Um, if you say God is sovereign but man is responsible, then that means to many that we are responsible to choose Jesus. But if God is the only one who chooses, we don't choose, then how is that fair? Paul would respond to that in Romans 9.20. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will that, will what is molded say to its molder, why did you make me like this? So we don't get to argue with God on this issue. And then those who believe that the Bible offers man a legitimate choice to choose or reject Jesus would say, I'm not accusing God. I'm accusing Calvinists of misrepresenting God. We're not going to settle this debate today. But John 6 is going to point us to both God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Whether you like those terms or not, that's how Scripture puts it. D.A. Carson, who is highly respected among almost every conservative believer that I know who knows him, weighs in on this issue. Quote, Divine sovereignty and salvation is a major theme of the fourth gospel. And John is not embarrassed by this. Because unlike many contemporary philosophers and theologians, he does not think human responsibility is thereby mitigated. In other words, God does all the choosing. He told um, uh, Nicodemus in John 3, look, a man cannot even see the kingdom of God unless he is born from above. It has to happen. You have to be born again if you want to see the kingdom of God. And you are born from above. But that doesn't mitigate or that doesn't release man from being responsible. Thus, Carson continues, he can speak, the Apostle John can speak with equal ease of those who look to the Son and believe in Him. This they must do if they are to enjoy eternal life. But this responsibility to exercise faith does not, for the evangelist, make God contingent. God is not just waiting for you to make the choice so that He can save you. He draws you to Himself, as we're going to see in just a moment. In short, John is quite happy with the position that modern philosophy calls compatibilism. These are compatible. God's choosing, man's responsibility, close quote. I'd probably never have this conversation just like this from the pulpit if, we, if I weren't forced to from John 6, but it forces us 
to look at texts that maybe make us a little bit uncomfortable with what we believe. So we cannot leave the text or this point without giving special attention to John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. This is going to be interesting if you'll notice this. God sends the Son. He draws the people to the Son, and they're put together a lot. And I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The Greek word helko is translated draw in the ESV. It's an interesting word with a, with a pretty broad range of meanings from see, <coughs> seeking to draw your attention. Hey, 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 I want to show you something. Two, being dragged against your will. In fact, two or three times in, in the book of Acts, Paul and whatever companion he was with at the moment were dragged to the authorities. They were dragged in front of the mob. They were dragged against their will to come to the Lord. James says to his believers, look, the rich are the ones who drag you to the courts. Why are you giving them such deference in your services? The panel on the White Horse Inn pointed out that on our own, we love darkness. Would you agree with that? I think we would all agree with that. It's later that we diverge. We love darkness and reject darkness. The light. We've learned that in John. If someone is in the light, you know that God has been working with that person. Why are some saved? God alone. Why do some reject? The fault lies with those who refuse to believe. Do you recall John 3.18? Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Do not think of John 6.44 simply in terms of sovereignty and responsibility, in terms of election and choice. There is that, but there is so much more. Jesus is drawing people away from a misunderstanding of the Torah to himself, the living word. He's drawing people from the synagogue <clears throat> to himself. And the church that will be the temple of the Holy Spirit, both individually and also collectively. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. My body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. First Corinthians presents both. This group is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And those who mess with it, either way, are messing with God. So from the synagogue to himself, from the works of man to the work of God, all of this is going on <clears throat> when Jesus draws or when the Father draws us to the Son. And when we believe, we are moved from death to life. John 6.44 should be read in conjunction with 6.37, which is the focus of this third point. The promise of unbroken relationship and eternal Security. One of the blessings of God's sovereignty and salvation, and Hannah stated it beautifully today, is the security of our relationship with him. If God is responsible for my salvation, he will not change his mind. 
John 6.37 and 6.44 seem to be given the same message. Look at verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Now, the temptation is to look at this verse and to say, what Jesus is saying here, all that come to me I will certainly welcome. Jesus is over here waiting, and we come to him, and he welcomes us to him. This is a figure of speech, uh, a little-known figure of speech, at least the title of it anyway, known as a litetes. Anybody know what a litetes is? It's, it's using a negative to promote a positive. Like, for instance, this. Oh, that cake wasn't bad at all. <laughs> That means that cake was really good, but you say it, you you use the negative and you say that cake wasn't bad at all. I should say this, this it's a good time to say it, I was with with all this negatives and positives and stuff going on. A professor was telling his class one time, there are a double negative in English equals a positive. Two negatives equal a positive. Then he said A double negative in some languages means it's really bad. But there's no language in the world where a double positive equals a negative. And the student in the back said, yeah, right. (laughs) So this is a lie to tease. This is using a negative to make a point in another way. All who come to me, I will never cast out. Really what he's saying is all who come to me, I will keep in. Who comes to Jesus? All that the Father gives to him. Over and over this emphasis of salvation being a gift, not anything for us to boast about, is throughout John 7. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. I will surely keep that person Praise the Lord. So if you're inclined to say, well, how do you know that's exactly what that verse means? When we get to the context in a few minutes, you'll see that the context requires that reading. So be looking for it when we get to 37 and the verses that follow that. If our eternal destiny is sure when we believe in Jesus, then how are we to understand the entire book of Hebrews and other verses in the New Testament that warn us that we walk away from Jesus at the peril of our souls. I cannot explain both security and walking away from Jesus. I can't explain how those coexist, but I do understand the warning passages in the New Testament to be a a, a means of grace, one of the ways that God keeps us from walking away. Can you lose your salvation in Jesus? No! But don't walk away. You do so at the peril of your soul. That seems contradictory, doesn't it? It's not. But I tell you, the secret things belong to the Lord. The things that are revealed belong to us and our children. We understand so much and we trust God for the rest. Staying close to Jesus is the focus of our next point and provides more difficult verses. Oh, goody. In John chapter 6. Uh, Do you think you would have been comfortable had you been in the crowd when Jesus said, 
If you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, there's no life in you. Whoa. And you've been following Jesus for a while. You've been seeing him do these amazing things. And now he's in what is clearly an argument with a lot of the people. They're like, why don't you feed us every day like you did yesterday? On the hillside at Galilee, come on. We want you to be king and we want you to feed us just like Moses did. You, can you not do it like Moses did? Moses didn't do it anyway. It was God the Father. So this argument that keeps on escalating. And now he says, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. What are we to make of such claims? This is where context helps us. And not just the context of John 6, although that of itself is very helpful, as we will see. But the context of the entire book of John is necessary for us to fully grasp Jesus' teaching, if it is indeed possible. What he's saying here. By the time we get to John 6, we're, up, we're prepared for John's use of, uh, of physical analogies to make a spiritual point. Just think about the metaphors <clears throat> that Jesus has used already in his interaction with people. It's initially misunderstood, later believed, and it makes sense once you believe it. So Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is like, what? What? Enter my mother's womb and be born again? How ridiculous. Absurd. Jesus was using a metaphor. We're going to see a little bit of movement in John 7. And later we're really going to see Nicodemus living out his faith in Jesus Christ. Even if it doesn't all make sense to him. At that particular point in time. The longer he went, the more it made sense. Then the woman at the well. You, you give me some water. Um, in fact, if you had known who was asking you to give him water, you would have asked him and he would have given you water that would have satisfied you eternally. You'd never thirst again. She's like, all right, let's have it. She didn't understand what he was saying, but she believed. And then it made sense. So when we get to John 7 or John 6, Jesus is using this metaphor uh, that illustrates a spiritual point. In John 6, Jesus promises eternal life to those who feast on the bread of life. And when the people persist in unbelief, Rita Cephalu proposes that Jesus moved from metaphor to hyperbole to drive home his point. He's not saying, okay, here's the real truth of the matter. You're just going to have to eat and drink. If you want to have life, he's using an extreme metaphor, which is why Augustine can say, believe and you have eaten. I think we're, I'm missing one there, uh, Dale. I, I hope I didn't miss it altogether. So does John have... The Lord's Supper in mind when he quotes these difficult sayings of Jesus. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. I mean, we could, we could think, well, yeah, okay, I see that. Interestingly, John does not directly mention this, the Lord's Supper anywhere in his gospel. But if, as I, as I think, John wrote late in the first century, 
The Lord's Supper was practiced frequently at worship services, and it would be impossible not to sense overtones of the Lord's table in Jesus' provocative words. Overtones, but he's not specifically referring to the table in this text. It's not so much that these words point to the supper, but that the supper points to all that Jesus had said. So in verses 56 to 58, Jesus speaks of the importance of staying close to God or abiding in him. This is language that John loves both here and in 1 John in his letters to the churches. If you know John's gospel, you fully anticipate this theme in John chapter 15 where Jesus is divine and we are the branches. Day in and day out, we are called to stay close to Jesus. Not just on Sunday to come get a good dose, but every day. Physical hunger reminds us that we are creatures who are constantly in need. It's one of the great things about fasting. It reminds us that we are creatures, that we are not in charge of life. I remember Bert Wallace saying and and David saying, Uh, and ran when they came back from Cuba. Everything that can possibly be eaten on that island has been eaten. You just don't see much life there. How dependent are we? We don't know anything about dependence as Americans. But we are utterly dependent. When an ice storm knocks out the power for two or three days, you'd think, "Uh uh-huh. Great tribulation has begun, you know? We're pitiful. We're creatures who are greatly dependent. But to think that food or wealth or status or anything else will fulfill us is misguided at best. If Jesus does not fill us, we will not be filled. Even as Jesus is rebuking those who do not believe, he promises that if we feed on him, we will joy, enjoy life. And we will see in John chapter 10, life to the full or abundant life. When we are close to Jesus, we will be filled up with the truth of our last point, the hope of the resurrection. Four times. Jesus promises in this text he will raise up believers on the last day, which is the day of judgment when all accounts are settled. Are you ready for that day when everything that you have said, thought, done will be revealed? Man. You want to be hiding in Jesus. You want to be behind the cross when that day comes. And the Savior has absorbed the wrath of the Father for your sin. So if this day you are not ready to meet the Lord, don't keep saying, I'm going to do better. Everything's going to be revealed for those who don't know Jesus. It'll be a different. We talked about this. Our elders talked about the judgment seat of Christ. Two judgments, the great white throne judgment in Revelation 20. 1 Corinthians 3 talks about the judgment seat of Christ for believers. It'll be an entirely different judgment. Our works will either be burned up 
or they will be as gold, silver, precious stones and endure as rewards. For, the, for those who don't know Jesus, the great white throne judgment of chapter 20, it's all laid out before and it'll be hard for anybody to say, I don't deserve hell. And hell will be the end for those who don't believe. If you don't know Jesus, cry out to him in repentance saying, oh God, forgive me, I'm a sinner. But I believe that Jesus died for me. And my only hope is in him. Dear Lord Jesus, save me. If you have repented of your sins and you have believed that Jesus died for you, then you will enjoy eternal life with him. And you will say with increasing frequency as the day goes, days go by, even so, come, Lord Jesus. So as we close, we're going to read through the text, and now we'll conclude with a very brief challenge. John 6, verses 35 to 59. So on, on the basis of everything that we talked about these last couple of weeks, think about Jesus and the crowd. He says some things. That they've been begging him, give us more food. Be the bread king. We, we, we got this. We, we know. We, we're with you. And Jesus is saying, no, you're missing the whole point, and the, and the argument keeps escalating. But he's going somewhere. <clears throat> Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, and everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. Before I go any further, I missed something a while ago. Those in verses... In verse 35, he says, all who come to me and, and all who believe will have eternal life. He's already laid the, 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 the solid foundation for the metaphor that he uses later. Eating and drinking are coming to the Lord and believing. And he's saying this over and over. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. For the Jews, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, in Isaiah, in fact, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. 
Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. They died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. You see this recapitulation where he's saying the same things over and over again. He's saying them a little different form, but he's saying the same truth over and over again. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Next week, when we focus on verses 15 to 71, just about the entire message will be application and a challenge to live in view of the truth that we've examined these last two Sundays. Today, though, I'm going to close with a challenge for you to feed on your soul, in your soul, on Jesus in the same way that you enjoy the food that God provides for you to enjoy. Whenever I taste really good food, Really good food. I'm talking about the kind that just makes you close your eyes and go, mmm, mmm, mmm. I think, man, I am glad to enjoy this taste for the glory of God. And I truly am. I mean that. God has provided beautifully for us to enjoy food. But we don't enjoy everything we eat, do we? Some of the things that we eat, we just do because we know it's good for us. Broccoli, Brussels sprouts, those of you who are very young, adults like that kind of mess. But those of you who are in junior high, uh, one day, just pray that one day you'll enjoy it too. But, But sometimes we just eat because we know it's good for us. You know how it is when you're sick and you're weak and you just think, I don't want to eat, but I need to. I need some sustenance. It's the same way with our relationship with the Lord. 
Feed on the living God. Feed on the Savior whom the Father has given to us. That you may be spiritually nourished. If the only spiritual food you receive is what's available on Sunday morning, you're going to be starved by the time the next week rolls around and really not even able to enjoy it. Ultimately, you will perish for a lack of food. We have been presented with the bread of life in John 6. Let us feast in the house of Zion and be nourished on the Son of God, the living Word, who loved us and gave Himself for us. Let our hearts always be tender and oriented toward the One who has drawn us to the Son, who has given us eternal life and keeps us keeps us now, never letting us go, and who satisfies our souls now and forevermore. Let's pray. I don't know about you, but when as, as we were reading through that text, Jesus said, don't grumble. I was just thinking about all the grumbling I've done this past week. There are so many things that keep us from the Lord and grumbling and discontent and frustration easily hinder the faith that is so beautifully given unto us through the Word, by the Spirit, to believe in the Son. So as we come to the Lord this day, who has given us his flesh and his blood. May we come with hearts of gratitude. Father, thank you for loving us this much. When we reflect on our own lives, it doesn't make sense that you love us this much. When we reflect on our own lives and say, I'm a pretty good catch, God, help us. Help us to see who we are apart from Jesus. But then may we not dwell there. May we throw ourselves on Him. And be renewed in spirit. And may the life and the fragrance of Christ be on us as we go through this dark and sinful world. Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.